0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have today the two authors of the just published book out from MIT Press titled Playing Oppression, The Legacy of Conquest and Empire in Colonialist Board Games. Um, This is a really interesting book that analyzes board games, something that I think uh, could have more attention put on it generally and looks particularly at uh, the board game's roots in imperialism, in colonialism, and traces that all the way up to the present to examine um, something that maybe a lot of us take for granted and don't think about through this lens. The book does a very good job of persuading us that we should. And so I'm pleased to have with us the two authors of the book, Dr. Mary Flanagan and Dr. Michael Jacobson, to tell us about their wonderful book. Awesome. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm glad Thank that you're you here for said having yes. us. <laughs> uh, before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could maybe each introduce yourselves and explain sort of how you came to write this book and how you came to write it together. So, Mary, if I can go to you first.
1: Right. Um, so, I. I- I'm a game designer and um, someone who's um, written other books about games and play, um, often from historical or large scale perspectives. My book, Critical Play, is um, kind of traces an art history of games. And so I've been engaged with all kinds of play and game studies for quite a long period of time. And Mikhail and I know each other since, uh, gosh, did we figure out it was 2003 or something like this?
0: I think it's... I think it's... 2000, yeah but somewhere around like there yeah. yeah so
1: we've known each other for a long period of time in the same kind of game studies circles and um we happened to be at a board game studies conference in um europe and you know we just were i i was just at essen and we were talking about which is a, a board game kind of convention in germany one of the largest board game events in the world and this the the prevalence of colonialist imagery of colonial fantasies of this raiders of the lost ark or exoticism or whatever this you know these these kind of tropes were continuing to be published we just started talking about this and just with disgust <laughs> and saying how is this possible in this day and age so that was about what 2017 was mm-hmm. that yeah. And so we yeah. we you know we we kind of uh, both shared similar um viewpoints and interestingly we're both born in the same year but in very different parts of the world but it it, uh, it all kind of ended up gelling that we um wanted to work on a book that really unpacked this stuff from a really deep level.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, and uh when we started talking about things I think you were the one who said that we are really interested in the same thing, but from two different perspectives. You came at it more from a a historical perspective of of, uh, tracing the roots uh, and looking at how we've gotten to where we are today. And I had really just sort of started seeing these teams repeating over and over again in in board games that i was looking at for for uh other reasons so i was i was really focused on the sort of here and now contemporary board games so i think that's where the idea of if we join forces we we sort of got it all covered mm.
2: That makes rather a lot of sense um, and definitely explains kind of the breadth that the book is able to cover. Um, And to speak to that, I want to ask, how did you, how does one research a book about board games? How did you kind of put all this together? What were your methods like? How many board games did you end up having to play? Oh boy. Maybe Mikit will
1: go into into like this idea of um, the spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, uh, so for me, uh, it it was about not just uh, looking at games and reading the the rules and looking at the pieces, but also getting these games played so we can see what arguments they make in action, if you will, because that's, after all, an important aspect of games games as a medium compared to to other uh, popular culture uh, formats. So uh, I I have, I'm still counting because uh, even though the book is out, uh, there's still things that needs to be delved into further. So right now uh, in the game lab at MIT, we have over a thousand games that we've collected for uh, this study, and uh, we've played recently. We hit three hundred and fifty, so uh, that's just on uh, on my site. So, so of course, uh, Mary has also played a lot of them, but but she also did a lot of traveling for for this project.
1: Yes, yes, I went to a lot of. Um small, um, archives, small game museums. I actually took about a month and a half, um, taking a train around Germany looking at small places. Um, I went to, um, different state museums and met with archivists who didn't have some of their games out, but they had them in stock in the, in the, in the archives. I also, um, some of this, uh, core research I was um, uh, pursuing kind of by surprise when I was a museum scholar at the Getty uh, Museum in um, the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. So, so it's been years of of, of archival work for me. A um, lot of really rich stuff at the Bodleian and at Oxford and um, and many really interesting um, archives around the world, but also. It's important to note that there is no one master record of board games around the world. There's no encyclopedic location to find them. There's no collection that has uh, you know a, a, some kind of authority about this stuff. There there really is uh, no core. A place to to go for board games. Some some museums have some. There's a museum of play in Rochester, New York, but it doesn't necessarily have the historical material. So, so we're, it, it's really interesting to to research this part of ephemeral pop culture that has been overlooked and is actually a site for a lot of human interaction over the last several hundred years um, that has not really been critically unpacked. So for us, it was a it was the, we we're using a lot of different kinds of methods, mix, mixed methods, um, to tackle this from experiential play to um, archival research and um, and uh, everything in between, and of course post-colonial theory as a as a lens to look at this stuff.
2: Thank you for both explaining kind of the many different pieces and hours, um, and months in, that went into this, I think it really comes through in the book. And I think, Mary, that's also a wonderful call for anyone listening to this who might be in search of a research project. Um, It sounds like there's a lot to kind of get into in this area. Um, But in order to do that, in order to go into the arguments that you were able to put together with all of these methods, um, there's one, I think, key definition we might need to discuss first, um, which is the category of games that the book focuses on, Euro games, what exactly are those? Um,
0: to begin with, uh, the term uh, sort of started out uh, being uh, different things like German games or designer games, and then it sort of coalesced into the term Euro games. And basically what we mean when we talk about Euro games is modern board games Roughly, if we wanted to to give it a, a, a date of origin, I, I would say 1995, where, when uh, Settlers of Catan came out in Germany, but uh, already before that, there had been this movement in Germany to create board games that weren't just for kids, but were for sort of of interest to the whole family. And that actually, in many ways, started in the U.S. Uh, decades earlier, but it didn't really take off in the U.S. We had a period where there were uh, things like the bookshelf series of board games that were sold more in men's clothing stores or barber shops and places like that. But uh, financially, it didn't take off here, but it did in Germany. And we hypothesized that maybe it has something to do with the very terminology we use when we talk about games. So I'm from Sweden, so uh, a Germanic language. So uh, we have a, a... term for these games that doesn't really exist in English uh, we, we we suffered a bit in trying to translate it but landed on companionship games uh, so Gemeinschaftsspiel or Selskapsspiel in Swedish uh, and it's, it's sort of a, an age neutral term, it doesn't say this is a children's game or this is a family game or this is a game for adults which always was you know the the branding issue in the u.s so some of these u.s designers uh, that found themselves without publishers in uh, in the u.s found an audience in germany and uh, even some of them moved to uh, europe uh, where the audience existed and sort of sowed a seed for uh, this uh, creative explosion of, among uh, 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 board game designers in Germany during the nineteen nineties. do you, Yeah, wanna add yeah I'll on? just
1: add a little bit to that. Thanks. It was, uh, I think, you did a great job with kind of positioning Euro games. I mean, in the book, we kind of trace post post World War II games. And look at the developments of those, especially in Germany, where um, where militaristic play, um, uh, Nazi stuff, you know, there were so many kind of banned um, ideas, ideas um, for playthings that actually before um, the rise of the Weimar Republic and all of that um, were kind of very commonplace. War games were very common. Um, kind of strategic games, you know, were published in Boy Scout equivalent magazines that there was a lot of planning and wargaming and this kind of stuff. And all of that had to go. And so this idea that Euro games are these complex, thinky games that involve a lot of, you know, multiple ages that are nonviolent That uh, 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 use a lot of different kinds of um, strategic decision making. uh, The introduction that players could have multiple kinds of actions and and decide which kind of action they would like to take on a given turn, etc. These kinds of things were all tied into some of the uh, some of the political social. Um, stuff after World War Two, also. So there's a uh, there's several ways that that um, eurogames emerge to be um, what what are now just contemporary board games. I guess.
2: Thank you both for sort of piecing all of those things together and helping us understand both what it is now, but kind of the different strands that got us here, because that's really helpful in helping us understand what we currently have, right? They come from somewhere and that has an impact. And in fact, a lot of the book is tracing over time and space um, different colonialist, imperialist, colloquially nasty perhaps um ways that some of these board games uh, operate either in their imagery how what they're actually talking about and a whole bunch of other things um so the my kind of assumption coming into reading this part of the book was that there would be some amount of change over time that there might be something you know pre-colonial board games i was like maybe that's a thing i don't know um, peak colonial board games, uh, post-colonial board games. Uh, Those were kind of the very rough categories in my own head. Uh, And thankfully, I'm not the expert on it. That's why we're talking to you all. So could you maybe take us through um, what sorts of depictions of the world, kind of conceptions of the world, how have they changed through time?
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and do some of the, the groundwork for some of the older stuff, um, because, you know, board games, uh, at least in their current form um, in the West, have um, emerged from, you know, the inventing of the uh, invention of the printing press. You have um, broadsheets. A lot of times if you are in an archive, um, board games, old board games will be um included in the prints and the print division, not necessarily in, you know, another kind of division because many of them were lithographs or other kinds of um, printed uh, ephemera, right? Um, And it's really interesting when you delve into some of these things, there were plenty of depictions of the world. For example, Le Joux de Monde, the Game of the World, uh, published in 1645, had this round board. It was a race board, kind of. Uh, uh, we call it the game of the goose structure, but that's just because it's a historic um, uh, uh, model for gameplay where you go around the board and you have your little spaces. You know, something very familiar um, to us now, even today. Um, but that but these these board games were also made by map makers and printers of, of ephemera. So you have a you have a very Distinct connection to map making and and um, kind of seeing the world uh, uh, through uh, through this kind of uh, map based thing. So geographical pastimes were actually kind of a thing, <laughs> but things changed very much in the 19th century um, as 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 uh, uh, manufacturing techniques changed, but also. Um, as uh, ideas changed in Europe and um, the colonial structures really gave root to a kind of, in, in effect, kind of a marketing ploy where um, the William Darton's, the noble game of elephant and castle in 1822 is this visually stunning game um, depicting um, uh, various aspects of Asia and, um, but,, uh, it's really super problematic. <laughs> it has but it's a beautiful object. So it really does kind of capture the way that Europeans were being positioned to look at the world through various educational structures. Um, there's, this is also the time of the tourist gaze and, you know, lecture circuits of people talking about their world travels and um, governments such as the, the British government trying to get colonists to move to some of these places by exoticizing them. So there are, are many, many layers to the depictions, but they're often, you know, stereotypical, racist, um, uh, oversimplifying cultural practices. Um, and, and very much, um, in in at least the, the 19th and 20, er, basically, yeah, the 19th century, really, um, thinking, taking on this tourist gaze, uh, to kind of know the world by, you know, traveling through it. And things change quite a bit in the 20th century, um, in the sense that, uh, at at the turn of the 20th century, things got much more, um even more racist it got, it got worse which is hard to imagine um yeah and um and and to to go to you know and contemporary games have inherited this stuff and our big treatise in the book is that it's not just representation it's not just pictures that are horrible right it's actually what you're doing in games how the games have developed and even what we call game mechanics what you're doing in games may have we 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 put forward developed because of colonial themes as a as a key part of games and not as a kind of add-on so even what you're doing in games have colonialist roots and that is probably to people who love board games a hard thing to confront
0: yeah i think it's uh, often seen as uh, like the, the mechanical layer of or the things that you do in the game that makes you have the experience that you have that that somehow just is what it is it's it's a given and then we give games different themes so I think the argument that maybe we could uh, Dress these mechanics in something else that, than uh, conquest and slavery is easier to to take to heart than than saying that maybe the mechanics themselves also are telling a story of uh, exploitation uh, and uh, resource mongering. But we do think that if the history of the world had been different, we would also have different mechanics in, in our board games. And we would think that those are, you know, by nature given to us and it couldn't be any other way. So so we're questioning that assumption that uh, that the mechanics are somehow neutral.
2: So... I'm wondering if I can ask sort of for an example of that, right, because this idea of it's not just the images you see, but what you're actually doing in the game. Um, Obviously, the book has quite a number of examples. So the task of choosing which one to talk about is probably difficult. Um, But could you explain what you mean and how this actually works in practice in terms of um, enacting these colonialist behaviors through a particular example?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just kind of run down a list of of some mechanics, and maybe we should delve into um, oh, I don't know, Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, that one stood so, out in the book. <laughs> yeah, it stands out. It stands out. Um, it continues to stand out. Um, so, for example, uh, we we look in the book at even something as simple seeming, seemingly simple as quiz mechanics. Um there are these little quizzes that came about about you know, how to be a good citizen and show that you know the British empire and show this and this, you know, and you, you, a well-educated person would know these trivial facts. Well, if that is, seems like a neutral mechanic until you look at the content being developed with these quiz games, the content with the quiz games is often just rife with imperialist um. You know, cultural superiority built in, and 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 by answering the quiz and getting answers correct, you're actually reinforcing the, the 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 mechanic of like, aha, I got it right. There is a right answer. This is the way to see the world. And so, the even something as simple as a quiz mechanic has a kind of uh, reifying force when coupled with content that um, can. Be highly problematic. There's touring and traveling, seizing territory, trading mechanics are a big part of Euro games, and that's also, of course, linked to colonialist practices. Collecting all of the things, you know, um, uh, there, whether it be resources or whatever, you, you, it's kind of endless resources that can be extracted and sent somewhere for someone's benefit. Um, that itself, you know, local people probably wouldn't see their own resources that way. <laughs> They might see them in a different way, and for a sustainable community. So the, these mechanics, uh, many mechanics, mirror colonial mechanics of trade and expansion, but um, and they embody this like kind of logic of colonial practices. But but we could go into a specific um, detail um, with Puerto yes. Rico, for example.
0: Yeah. So I think this is a good time for me to. Uh state that I claim no sort of ethical or moral high ground here because I I see myself in a lot of these uh, designers and design decisions they tend to be white European men of roughly my age that were sort of uh, around when this sort of explosion that I mentioned earlier happened within German board game design where they reached critical mass and started learning from each other and challenging each other to make more and more interesting board games. And um, I think it comes from the, the cultural climate we were all embedded in. It, it was the movies we were watching, it was the comic books we were reading uh it was even the history books that we were reading in school that sort of taught us that that this is just how things are and in that regard i think these board games are kind of often like history fan fiction and i think Puerto Rico is a good example of that. So it, it makes the assumption that the land itself only really is there to be uh, exploited and kind of serves as our playground. So what you do in the game is that you you play uh, colonial governors who uh, build up... Uh, Refineries and other factories, and uh, develop uh, uh, the uh, fields where you can grow crops like tobacco uh, uh, and uh, uh, cotton, etc. And then you ship the resources that the the, uh, the the ideally the refined resources back to the old world, and what you get is money and. Fame, basically, which is tracked in, in terms of victory points, which is a very common way of determining who the winner is going to be in these games. Uh, so it has a model of extraction and uh, becoming rich and famous without looking at where where does this really come from and what do we leave behind. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's a very common model for what, what I sometimes call machine building games. So you build up a system that gives you more and more resources until you turn it all into victory points at the end to see who the winner is.
2: Thank you for explaining um, kind of the pieces that go into that and the ways in which, uh, I think, Mary, you said the kind of the reinforcement uh, between the images and what you're doing, and uh, these imperialist and colonial uh, implications, worldviews, I suppose. Um, I wanted to pick up on something, Mikhail, You just uh, mentioned the kind of explosion in popularity, and of course, we talked about this a little bit with the idea of what is a Euro game. Um, why did board games kind of become much more popular in the 20th century, or did they become loads more popular, or do we just have better documentation of it? Kind of how do we think about the role of popularity in this
0: well they they didn't board games as a whole didn't really become more popular because we we have the family games like monopoly and and so on that that still make up for for the large bulk of what people are playing when they are playing board games. But what we sometimes think of as the board game hobby with people who are uh, really dedicated fans of playing board games and uh, uh, play maybe 20, 30 new games every year, uh, that is a relatively new phenomenon. And uh, I think of it as, so there are financial reasons, uh, going back again to, to uh, post-war Germany, uh, publishers like Ravensburger, for instance, saw that... Uh, uh, they were selling a lot of games like Clue or Cluedo for our British audience, or uh, uh, Monopoly and, and Risk and so on. But they weren't; uh, they didn't own the intellectual property, so they had to pay uh, other owners to to publish the game. So, so they started doing competitions where where. German designers could submit games uh, and win an award. Uh, and then that led to uh, those games getting uh, uh, a lot of press. So they would sell well, especially for the Christmas or season in Germany. So this became kind of an engine within. Uh, board game development in germany where more and more people got interested in making games because they saw uh, people actually making money from this which was a, a new concept and they learned from each other because they knew that the juries of these prizes they were looking for the next cool thing so you couldn't just repeat like a monopoly formula or something like that they you had to invent something new in in order to uh to win these awards and then they learned a lot from each other and this i think went on for like the 80s and and 90s before the bubble kind of burst and these new this new type of games sort of reached outside of the German borders and especially in the u.s uh, settlers of Caton had an important role there in in sort of breaking the the floodgates and then we started seeing uh, US pu- uh, publishers and uh, board game retailers importing german games and asking for uh english translations of german games and we started seeing board game clubs and so so on evolving here so so that was how it became the hobby it is today
2: thank you mary is there anything you want to add about that i mean (laughs) That was pretty good. (laughs) It was pretty good. All right. Well, I'm happy to move on to the next question, um, which goes back to that kind of uh, false idea that I had in my head coming into this book of the pre-colonial, the peak colonial and the post-colonial board game. Um, Because I admit, I definitely had a vague idea in my head that um, board games are still quite popular and therefore uh, they now, new board games, the ones that are coming out now, they're not colonial, surely. Um, they don't have any of this sort of imagery or problematic aspects. And, of course, your answer already about game mechanics helps kind of start to clear away the the assumptions I made that were not actually accurate, that a lot of those mechanics are still there and a lot of times um, they are still in these new games. But I was really quite struck that uh, even just beyond the kind of, well, we still have quizzes, well, we still have this, uh, there were a lot of new games, recent games that, still seem to be pretty colonial. Why? Yes.
1: It's amazing. It's a, it's an amazing horror. I, I don't, I don't understand how it's the last bastion of being culturally sensitive or something. I just, um, uh, there has been, you know, uh, and, and this, this is actually true a little bit in the history of video games as well. This idea that, oh, you know, um, it's just a plaything. It's just a game. Therefore it's not important. It doesn't have to represent difficult things in culture. In fact, it can just mess with, with, with culture and, and, and make whoever our target audience is, um, happy and content with their, with their empowerment in the world, because as a game player, you want to give your player, as a game designer, you want to give your player some kind of agency, well, you have a lot of agency as a as a colonial empire, it turns out, um, and you don't have a lot of agency if you are a colonized uh, people. So, the, this 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 kind of quest, you know, it's like this adventure swashbuckling thing. You know, you see it in films, but it's definitely getting a a, 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 a serious um, look at, in in cinema. But it, it's still lingering on. Now, there have been some recent improvements. Um, the, uh, the creators of, uh, Puerto Rico have recently, uh, re-skinned their game to set it in a, uh, a time when Puerto Rico had uh, more agency. And, uh, because in the game there's, and, and we could talk about this at length about there, are these characters who are called colonists, but are they really colonists or are they slaves? Um, and, and, and there are new games coming out in the last chapter of our book. We do point to hopeful places, right there. There is hope, and there is a lot of innovation in trying to really dig up some of these some of these um, tropes, right, and, and really redo them. But we just wanted to first off just start by identifying them and by you know bringing this stuff to light because really there has been no academic book that's done this. There have been some really great bloggers and some you know critic game critics who have brought up pieces of this stuff, but we really wanted to kind of start off with a systematic way that we could begin to improve. Um, and so I think, hopefully our book goes to that, you know, optimistic direction, but yes, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, you know, I was just at the can game festival in, um, in France, I guess it was last weekend or the weekend, but it was recently. And, you know, you get on a ship and you're doing something in Jamaica and you're not Jamaican. <laughs> you know the characters are not jamaican doing their own thing it's a uh, you know, all these uh, you know colonized um uh um situations and and it, it just
2: keeps happening why do you think it's persisted yeah sorry oh, michael uh, yeah, yeah you, could, so, you
0: might jump yeah on. sorry I, uh, Can you, can you give me the question again
2: Yeah, uh, I I mean, to both of you, really, why has uh, this strong colonial imprint and worldview in games persisted so much, even till now?
0: So I, I think Mary kind of touched on it, but I think it's because board games in general are still made and published by the privileged or the privileged. Uh, Without thinking about it, that is uh, how the the system works. Uh, So it takes a long time to exact change on, on systems like this. So while our overall sense is still that why is this still like this in you know, 2023, we do see kind of glimmers of of hope. but uh, And we do see a bit of a sort of early signs of a changing of the guard, even, you know, like at higher up positions in the big publishing companies. But it, it is like this big oil tanker that just goes extremely slowly when it comes to changing course and changing sort of ideas and mindsets.
2: Well, it would only be fair to ask both of you to tell us about those glimmers of hope um, and those changes that are beginning to happen. Um, What are some of the reasons to be optimistic about the future of board games?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, all of the... um... The younger um, designers entering the field, you know, for a long time uh, before we had crowdfunding, we had um, very um, the 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 publishing houses were quite um, in control of messages, right? So uh, th- it was a very centralized model where you had to get a you know a publisher to be able to afford to publish um, a board game. Um, the crowdfunding, it, it's it's a mixed bag. It does allow new voices to emerge. It also you know, allows, um, problematic games to come out as well at the same time. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a transition period. I think, um, I, there, there are, there are plenty of really positive examples. Like, um, um, I'm thinking of, of Coyote and Crow, which is a, um, a, a role-playing game that was kickstarted in 2021. And it's a speculative, we don't really talk about too much about role-playing games, but this one is particularly noteworthy because, it's a speculative role-playing game in which Europeans never colonized the Americas, and it's created by a team of Native Americans representing more than a dozen tribes. So, so it's it, it, it's it, it, it's trying to like p- propose the world that could be. Um, then there is a, a game Nunami, which is a game by a Native Canadian um, uh, in Quebec who's really looking at kind of cultural mythos as well as creating a puzzle game. So they're the, they're really interesting. Um, nuggets, and in a few weeks I'll be um doing a uh, a discussion um with Shelf Stories and um the game um Spirit Island, which is set a, a an interesting um bar for a lot of new games. It's a game where um there are these very skinny white pieces that that are kind of conquista, scary conquistadors <laughs> looking who come to this who are trying to settle this island and players are playing in the the part of deities who fight on behalf of the di- indigenous population, the dahan, to protect their lands. So, so what we're seeing these really interesting, um, uh, new discoveries, um, and new designers coming out. And I think when we see proof of concept and that innovation can still happen without these terrible, <laughs> um, you know, stories of white supremacy basically, um, we will see big game companies also um, coming along with that as well, uh, because it is about innovation and it is about telling stories in a new way. But there, there is a there are some growing pains that the that the both the the tabletop industry and uh, designers really have to reckon um, with these notions that the, some of the things that have been being made are are not only just questionable, they're they're really problematic and have to be um, rethought in a fundamental way.
0: Yeah, I also think in terms of uh, mechanics, what I've been seeing recently is a lot of games that use resistance as a model rather than control and uh, exploitation. So I I find that interesting. And uh, Sometimes it's still on the sort of uh, seeing like a state level of things, but but it can also be expressed in more sort of individual, more uh, documentary manners. Uh, t- two examples that I would want to mention is one recent game called Stonewall Uprising, about uh, the fight for gay civil rights, uh, and uh, another game called Arranged, uh, which is about uh, th- the custom of arranged marriages uh, in uh, Pakistan and, and India. And uh, really, what what they both do is they don't put you in the role as the 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 powerful uh, uh controller of a system but rather someone resisting a system and still creates a play experience that that doesn't just feel like a sort of an educational thing that well that was uh, i guess good to learn about but did we have fun? No, these games are really exciting to play. Uh, and that, I think, is is uh, very promising.
2: Those are lots of reasons to hope. Thank you very much for um, giving us those examples. I'm sure lots of people will be looking up those games as we speak. Um, but before I let you both go, uh, Mary, you mentioned briefly a little bit of what you are looking to do next. So I was wondering um, for both of you, The book is now out. Are there any things about your current projects or your next projects or anything else you might be doing that you'd like our listeners to be aware of?
1: Well, I suppose I should mention for, because in academia, you know, we wear many different hats, right. And um, as I, I may be writing these academic books, but I also run a game company. And so I'm actively trying to reinvent (laughs) solutions to these problems (laughs) Um, in real products, which is, um, which is, uh, interesting. So that's an ongoing, um, uh, affair at com, R E S O N Y M. And so, uh, yeah, we I publish, uh, one to two games a year through that arm. And we're really trying to, um, to reinvent some of these, uh, some of these assumptions and tropes, uh, you know, and make it work and do proof of concept. So that's, that's one thing I'm kind of working on in an ongoing way. And I'm starting a new book on speculative game design because that's also related to um, the last chapter of the book, and it's related to um, my my practice, and that is using games as as ways that we can imagine futures. Right? Like they they games are very special because they build. You you create a game, and it builds a world, and it the world has rules, and and within those rules, you can you can do some really interesting stuff. So. I keep trying to do a lot of social activist games, and um, I've had a long track record of my research lab, Tilt Factor, doing these kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm trying to encapsulate some ways in which speculative game design works as a as a practice for imagining the future in positive ways.
0: And I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not quite done with sort of the the critiquing of. Uh, games that have a colonialist themes. Right now, I'm working with my colleague, uh, Rick Eberhardt, on a paper about how we enact and set maps in motion in settler colonialist games in, in Anglo-America. So think like Lewis and Clark games, Oregon Trail games, Mormons, train games, Gold Rush, all of that stuff. Uh, But uh, I'm also dipping my toes into game design. So I I have a a high-level prototype of a game called Promesa, uh, which is about the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. And uh, I made it uh, together with the design and artist collective Popsicleta. And we did it in Puerto Rico and uh, uh, at MIT. And uh, that model of of cultural engagement uh, uh, is something that I'm very interested in exploring further in future games as well.
2: Well, very cool projects from both of you. Thank you so much for telling us um, about them. And while you are off pursuing these many different ways of critiquing what has happened, trying to fix it for the future, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Playing Oppression, The Legacy of Conquest and Empire in Colonialist Board Games. Mary and Michael, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks,
1: Miranda.
0: Thank you.